Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. As you know, we've been making our way through the book of Genesis, and today we arrive at Genesis chapter 14. This chapter is located in the Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis. And so again, we uh, continue to, to learn about the events of our father in the faith, Abraham himself. So Genesis chapter 14. After we read Genesis 14, we also will be reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Alisar, Shedelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shem-Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedelamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedelamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah Kuriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sire, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Shedelamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim, which was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of, Saddam, uh, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner, these were allies of, allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like, you can also turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I'll be reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And notice in this passage how the author to the Hebrews is really expositing or interpreting for us this chapter in Genesis. Again, please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what is distinctive about Reformed theology? What is distinctive about Reformed theology, a Reformed interpretation of Scripture? Well, Reformed theology sees the Old Testament as being ultimately all about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament isn't about Jesus in some generic sense. The Old Testament isn't ultimately about Jesus Uh, being our moral example that we are to imitate. Rather, the Old Testament is about how Jesus is our Savior. 
about how Jesus alone saves sinners. It is through Christ that we are saved. Beloved, we do not save ourselves. It is through Christ that we are justified. We do not justify ourselves. It is through Christ that we are sanctified. We do not sanctify ourselves. Again, boys and girls, how much credit can you take for being born into the family that you were born into? None. You had absolutely zero control over the family that God placed you in. In much the same way, we can take absolutely zero credit for being made part of the family of God. That work is a work of Christ alone. And so here in Genesis 14, like many other places in the Old Testament, this chapter is a chapter that's all about Jesus. The two main characters in this chapter, Abram and Melchizedek, are not interesting figures from the ancient Near East. These are figures who are ultimately working for Christ. They are serving Jesus. Jesus is the greater Abram. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Genesis 14 is ultimately all about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'd like us to reflect upon those two points. How Jesus is the greater Abram, and how Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. And as we see those two points established, we then, Lord willing, will see how Genesis 14 is really all about Jesus. How Jesus alone saves sinners. Well, Genesis 14 opens up, and it almost feels like an account of militaristic warfare from the ancient Near East. It's very easy to get lost in the weeds of all these kings with strange names and strange places. Well, the, 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 uh, the four kings that are listed in verse 1, these are kings who were kings of cities east of Canaan in what would become Babylon and Asher. And the five kings listed in verse 2 were kings of cities nearby the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, in Canaan. And notice that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are included in the list of kings in verse 2. Well, at some point in time, these kings, these kings near the Dead Sea, they, they stopped paying tribute to Shedelamar, one of the kings of the east. They had sort of been under his reign to a certain extent. And so they decided to rebel. Well, these kings in the east aren't going to tolerate this rebellion. So what do they do? Well, they make their way to the Dead Sea to deal with the rebels. And along the way, they conquer various cities in their wake. Once these kings of the east make their way to the Dead Sea area, there's this great battle in the Valley of Siddim, which is located nearby the southern part, the southern end of the Dead Sea. And who wins this battle? Well, the kings of the east defeat the rebels, defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings located nearby the Dead Sea. And so at this point in our narrative, we see that not only the people in the possessions of Sodom are taken into captivity, but Lot, Abram's own nephew, Abram's own kinsman, is also captured by these foreign kings. Now, let's step back for a moment and think about how Lot has been characterized so far in the book of Genesis. Last week, we noticed how Lot has been living according to the eyes and not the ears. 
It soon became evident that the land could not support both Abram and Lot. And so what does Abram do? Abram gives Lot first choice of the land. And what kind of land does Lot choose? Well, he chooses the land that dazzles the eye. Even though this land may have been outside the land of Canaan, even though this land was nearby the wicked city of of, of Sodom, it didn't matter for Lot. All he cared about was choosing the land that most dazzled the eye. Furthermore, Lot doesn't take into account Abram's interests, nor does he take into account the promises of God that his own uncle received and that were in part for him as well as a member of Abram's family. He's living according to the eyes and not the ears. Well, here in chapter 14, we also learn that He's not just living nearby the city of Sodom. He's now a resident of this wicked city. He's living in Sodom. And so all in all, Lot turns his back on his truest and and dearest friend, his his own uncle Abram, and he turns his back on the land of promise. Consequently then, as Lot is facing the same fate as this wicked city of Sodom, Lot is essentially just experiencing the natural consequences of his own choices, decisions, and actions. You'll notice in verse 13, we learn that someone from the, ba- uh, from the battle, someone from the Valley of Sidim, uh, runs back and tells Abram what, what's going on. Tells Abram that his own nephew had been taken captive by these foreign kings. And what is Abram's response? Well, he takes the men of his household and he goes and wages a war against Shedelamar and these other foreign kings of the east. And Abram is triumphant. He defeats these foreign kings and he takes back the people and the possessions of Sodom and even Lot himself. Here in Genesis 14, we get a small glimpse of Abram not as an insignificant nomad and pilgrim, but as a mighty warrior leading a conquest. And so how does this this narrative, this first half of Genesis 14, how does this point us and lead us to to Jesus? Well, again, we have to remember that Lot is in the predicament that he is in because of his own choosing, because of his own actions, because of his own sin. He chose to become a resident of Sodom. and uh, He chose to leave the land of promise. Abram does not owe it to Lot to save him here. But yet, nevertheless, Abram does. At a great cost to himself, at great risk to himself, he goes and saves Lot. Well, we should see ourselves here as Lot. We are in the predicament that we are in, not because of God's doing, but because of our own doing because of our own sinful choices, because of the decision of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. We are under the power of sin, the grip of Satan, the condemnation of the the law based on our own decisions. God does not owe it to us to save us. But yet, he does. Christ, as it were, leaves heaven and takes upon himself a human nature. He is found in the form of a servant and dies in a humiliating and cursed death on the cross. 
And he does all of these things to deliver you from your most severe enemies. In Colossians 2.15, the Apostle Paul tells us that through the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and triumphed over them. The irony of Christ's conquest is that he does not do it through a physical sword. He does it through laying his life down. That is how Abram points us to Jesus. Abram, the mighty warrior, points us to Christ, the mighty warrior leading a conquest over our most severe enemies by laying his life down. And so, through the conquest of Christ... We have been delivered from the power of sin. Sin no longer is our master. The sins that you struggle with Monday or Sunday through Saturday, the anger, the critical spirit, the lust, the discontentment, the greed, all of these sins that characterize our lives day in and day out do not define us. They are not who we are. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, And such were some of you, but you've been washed, justified, and sanctified through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the conquest of Christ, the accusations of the law, which are mediated to you through your own conscience, have been abrogated. So yes, you still hear those accusations ringing in your consciousness. But they are of no consequence to your standing before God because of the conquest of Christ. Sure, apart from Christ, they're true. You don't keep the commandments of God. You are prone always to all evil. And you do grievously sin against your heavenly Father. But yet, because of the conquest of Christ, they have no consequence to your standing before God. Through the conquest of Christ, the sharp arrows of Satan have been blunted. Meaning that you are completely protected and safe from the spiritual warfare that is going on in this present evil age. And yes, there is spiritual warfare. But you, beloved, don't have to fear that spiritual warfare because of Christ, who is our mighty warrior. Do you believe these things? Do you live your life as if these realities are actually true? As if you are not under the power of sin. As if you are not defined by your vices and failings and weaknesses. As if the the accusations that you hear in your own head are of no consequence. As if the sharp arrows of Satan that seek to make you stumble have been blunted. You rest in these realities. Jesus is the greater Abram. He is our mighty warrior who has already led a conquest against our most severe enemies. Well, notice what happens after Abram leads this mighty battle. He comes back and is met by the king of Sodom. Now, of course, this makes sense. The king of Sodom owes his life to Abram. Abram has rescued him and his city. He has He has taken back the people and the possessions of Sodom. And so the king of Sodom is is right to go and and meet Abram. But notice who else shows up at this meeting. Another king shows up at this meeting. 
Melchizedek, this strange figure who only shows up here and in Psalm 110. This individual who's both a king and a priest, this individual who brings bread and wine and blesses the great patriarch Abram. And this is the individual to whom Abram pays a tithe to, a tenth of all his spoils. And so who is this strange individual? Who is Melchizedek? And further, how does Melchizedek lead us to Jesus? How is Jesus the greater Melchizedek. Well, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the passage that we recently heard, is essentially a Christ-centered exposition and sermon of this portion of Genesis 14, uh, verses um, 17 through 24 of Genesis 14. Now, the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 makes a big deal of the name Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Melchi in Hebrew means king. Zedek means righteousness. And therefore, by translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. But Melchizedek is also king of Salem. Now, Salem may have been ancient Jerusalem. Salem literally means peace. And thus, Melchizedek is also king of peace. King of righteousness and king of peace. In Melchizedek, we see the, 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 the kissing of righteousness and peace. And in Christ, we see that God imputes to us the righteousness of his son, that we might have peace with him. Well, not only is Melchizedek a king, he's also a priest. He's a priest of God Most High. He's a priest of Yahweh himself, the one who gave the promises to Abram. Melchizedek is a king and a priest in one person. This is something that could not and did not happen for future Israel. Why? Well, kingship came from the, tri- the line of Judah. The Levitical priests came from what tribe? The tribe of Levi. And therefore, the kingship and priesthood required separate lineages. And so one could not be both a king and a priest in one person. But not so with Melchizedek. He is a king and a priest in one person. But more than that, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, we, we learn that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. It is striking that we do not find a genealogy associated with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. We are not told who his parents are, who his grandparents are, who his great-great-grandparents are. He just pops in and out of the narrative. Now, this is significant because it is found in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, genealogies are very important. We're only in Genesis 14, and, and we've read many genealogies up until this point. Genealogies are important to the author of Genesis. Why? Because it is through genealogies that God is advancing the promise of Genesis 3.15. Consequently, then, it's striking that Melchizedek has no genealogy. He just pops in and out. It is as if he's eternal. Now, whether or not he's literally eternal or just literarily eternal, we don't really know. But either way, he resembles the eternal Son of God. That's the point that the author to the Hebrews is making 
in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Jesus, then, is the greater Melchizedek. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Jesus is a king and priest in one person. He's a king and a priest in one person, boys and girls. Um, I imagine your dad is a husband, a father, a worker, and he holds all of these offices and duties in his one person. Well, in a similar way, Jesus functions as a king. He functions as a priest in his one person. He is both. Jesus is king. He's king of the church. Again, boys and girls, I'm not the king of the church. Your elders, Elder Witt, Gilbert, Dottel, they're not the kings of the church. The URCNA is not the king of the church. Christ is the king of his church, and he rules and governs his church by his word and sacraments, and then through faithful under-shepherds. But Christ isn't only king of the church. He's also king of, of all of society, of the entire earth. And he rules society by virtue of the covenant that he made with Noah. Therefore, through that Noahic covenant, he's preserving the natural family. He's preserving enterprise institutions. And he's preserving justice that we may continue as a society. Christ is king. He is king. He's king over all things. There's not one square inch of planet Earth whereby Christ does not say mine, as Abraham Kuyper once said. Christ is king. But Christ is also a priest. Now Christ is a priest not after the order of Levi. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Psalm 110, which is a psalm that we will be uh, singing shortly after this sermon, King David, it's as if he puts his ear to the ground and he hears this intra-Trinitarian speech that was spoken before the foundation of the world, whereby Yahweh is speaking to Adonai, God the Father, is speaking to God the Son and says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus came from the line of Judah. He didn't come from the line of Levi. He's not a priest after the order of the Levitical priesthood. And the point that that the author to the Hebrews goes on to make in Hebrews chapter 7 is that because Abram was blessed by Melchizedek and paid a tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek is greater, is superior to Abram. Then, if we acknowledge that the Levitical priest descended from Abram, that means that Melchizedek is not only superior to Abram, but also superior to Levi and the entire Levitical priesthood. Which then means that if Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, then he is superior to the entire Levitical system. The end of Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, instructs us about the two main aspects of Jesus' priesthood. Jesus' priesthood includes his sacrifice and his intercession. His sacrifice and his intercession. And these two duties go hand in hand. They're inseparable. Which means that if Christ has died for you, he also intercedes for you. If he intercedes for you, then that means he's died for you. One cannot experience um, the sacrifice without the intercession or vice versa. These two benefits are inseparable. Christ not only died for you to satisfy the wrath of God for your sins, he also lives to make intercession for you, 
to care for you, to sympathize with you, to help you in your weaknesses. This is who Jesus is as your priest. Furthermore, Jesus as your king and priest retains these offices continually, eternally, and perpetually. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, you'll notice that in Genesis 14, Abram, Abram himself, this great patriarch of the faith, he is blessed by Melchizedek. And he is blessed over bread and wine. Abram is blessed by Melchizedek over bread and wine. Now we may ask, how do we experience the blessing of the one who is greater than Melchizedek? How do we experience the blessing in this age by the one who is greater than Melchizedek, Jesus himself? We experience that blessing in the Lord's Supper, in this holy meal of bread and wine. Just as Melchizedek blessed Abram over bread and wine, Jesus blesses us over bread and wine. Sometimes, as Reformed Christians, we don't quite know what to do with experience. We might recognize that uh, evangelicals emphasize experience too much, and so we think, well, experience is bad. Experience is not bad. However, God has told us where we are to experience him, and we are to experience him at the table of the Lord. In the Lord's Supper, God essentially is telling you, taste the bread and be assured that you really are united to the very humanity of Christ And through that humanity, the very life of the Godhead is mediated to you. In the Lord's Supper, God is telling you, taste the wine and be assured that the bitter wrath of God has been absolved. Taste the wine and be assured that the sweet love of God has been poured out into your life. The Lord's Supper is not for those who have it all together. It's not for those who have a really strong faith. It's for the weak. It's for those who continue to stumble over the same sins day in, day out, week in, and week out. The Lord's Supper is for pilgrims on the way. And thus Christ, the greater Melchizedek, desires to feed us, to nourish us over bread and wine. Last of all, we also see that Abram himself pays a tithe to Melchizedek. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of all his spoils. He's serving Melchizedek. Abram is serving Melchizedek. Well, Christ, as our priest, he died for us that he might own us. He died for us that he might be our master. He died for us that we might belong to him, body and soul, life and in death. One of the consequences of this is that we owe him everything. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Because Christ is your master, because Christ owns you, He also owns all that you have. He owns your wealth, your intellect, your creativity, your ingenuity, your your industriousness. Everything that you possess is Christ, and thus he calls you to serve him with everything out of gratitude for what he's done for you. And so, beloved, Genesis 14, along with the rest of the Old Testament, are ultimately about Christ. The Christ who alone saves sinners. Jesus, as the greater Abram, is our conquering warrior. Jesus, as the greater Melchizedek, is our eternal king and priest. It's the same Jesus who now invites you to partake of this meal of bread and wine and thus experience union and communion with him. Let's pray.